2012 was one of the deadliest years on record for journalists. The Arab uprisings and now the conflict in Syria have claimed the lives of dozens of reporters. And yet they still go back into conflict. Yeah, right, so this is one of those moments where you're like speeding down the road in a car with dudes with guns. You have no idea where you're going. And part of you thinks it's a really good idea. Um, we're way outside of any town or village, um, just over the border, with got three guys who have AK-47s. We, they are all, you know, wearing green khaki-type jackets and, you know, headscarves tied around their hair. They've got beards. They're psyched. You know, they've got, they're clearly, like, pumped with adrenaline. Can't stop thinking, like, why am I doing this? <laughs> I know the answers, and none of them are good. I'm doing this because other people did it, and I felt competitive. I'm doing this because I've been trying to get some kind of access for, like, two weeks, and now that I finally got it, I did it. <clears throat> I'm also worried that if I make it out, that's like one more step toward the abyss. Every time you make it out okay, that's like further down the road you go, thinking that you're always going to make it out okay. It's been a bad year. Actually, it's been a bad couple of years. It all started back in 2011, not in that bombed-out car with the gun dudes, but earlier. It was the year of the Arab Spring. Protesters were flooding the streets across the Arab world. Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, Bahrain, Libya, Syria. Millions and millions of people calling for the downfall of dictators. I was stuck in Baghdad watching it all on TV. I was the NPR correspondent there. I kept writing to my boss, put me in, coach. Then something terrible happened. Word came that two reporters were with rebel fighters in Libya when they took mortar fire. Cameraman Tim Hetherington died almost immediately. Photographer Chris Hondros survived a major head injury, but the situation did not look good. I frantically read Facebook and Twitter posts from the field hospital where Chris had been taken. A friend was handed his blood-filled helmet before he died. I had known Chris, sort of. He was a lovely guy who I'd seen speak a few times, gone drinking with a few times. He was one of those guys who's almost universally loved by the tribe. That's what we call ourselves, foreign correspondents who work in dicey places, the tribe. Losing Chris and Tim was very bad for the tribe. For days I read posts about the horrible task of bringing their bodies out of Libya, I watched Tim's experimental film about what it's like to be a reporter in a war zone and what it's like to try to come home. In one scene, he's sitting in the backseat of a car as it whizzes down some muddy road in Africa. The car is full of guys with guns. That is the best feeling, I said to myself, when you're on your way into the complete unknown. And then I started to cry. Sitting at my desk the next day, things began moving in slow motion. I would pass my hand in front of my face, and it felt like it was weighted. I couldn't hear right, couldn't finish a sentence. I started torturing myself with questions. What the hell were they thinking? What the hell was I thinking? Why do we do this job when we know what's at stake? When we know we could die? 
I realized I needed help. So I called the psychiatrist who NPR kept on retainer at the time. His name is Mark Brain. He used to be a foreign correspondent, too. Now he specializes in trauma. Mark did what a good shrink is supposed to do. He helped me understand I was not some kind of freak. I recorded his side of the conversation. It's just, it, it's, the, it's the straw on the camel. You know, you don't know that the, the poor old camel is about to break its back. You just add that one extra straw and bang. It's not the straw that did it. It's the accumulation. And it's very, it's, it's very normal, Kelly. It's just incredibly normal. Are you with me? Um, it's like your brain sl has slowed down after the news of the, the deaths in, in Libya, so saying, I'm processing a whole load of stuff here, Kelly. <laughs> um, I just haven't got, the, haven't got the wherewithal at the moment to help you concentrate on something else. I, I, what do you enjoy doing, Kelly? What, 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 what fills your batteries? Spending time with my kid, I said. Her name's Loretta. She's a toddler now. Where's your, your daughter? Tell me about your daughter. Gosh, I didn't realize you were a mum. <laughs> she stays with her dad, my husband, in Istanbul, I said, mm. while I'm working in Baghdad. Ouch. <laughs> ouch, ouch, ouch. There's no beating about the bush. I mean, there's no getting away from that, Kelly. That's, that's tough. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, Mark seemed horrified that I was doing this job, even though I have a little kid. I started to lose it. This is why I'm calling, I told him. I think this whole weird reaction to Chris and Tim's death is more than just some overloaded system thing. I think I'm really starting to question everything I do. I mean, why do I do this job? Why do any of us do this job? Mark tried to explain that we do this job because it's important. It's important to be a witness to history. He also said our bodies are still equipped to survive on the plains of Africa. Back in the day when we had to escape large predators. In times of danger, we emit massive quantities of adrenaline. And once you've had a taste, he said, it's hard to give up. Mark tried to comfort me in the fact that even though I might be addicted to adrenaline, I did stay put. I didn't try to go to Libya, where a war was raging. And I think, Kelly, it's about being conscious, above all, being aware that, yes, you can make choices. You know, and these are not easy choices. Whichever way you go... You know, which whatever happens, they are they are very, very difficult choices and they matter enormously. Mark was basically telling me it's okay to walk away from this job. And that was definitely not something I wanted to hear. I told him he'd been really helpful, but I still didn't have an answer to my question. I tried to talk to some colleagues about it, but they were mostly trying to act tough. Others were simply too sad. In the end, I decided to expand the circle, talk to as many people as I could. I'm a reporter, so I figured I might as well use my reporter skills on my own life. I had to answer the question, why? Why do reasonable, educated people choose to do a job like this? And what can get us to stop? For now, let's stick with the science and a guy named Anthony Feinstein. He's a professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto. I sat down with him when we both were on vacation in the U.S. I researched how journalists cope psychologically with the dangers of war. Feinstein is the only person who has ever researched war correspondents. For the past decade, he's surveyed and followed more than 300 of what he calls frontline journalists. What excited me about Feinstein is he focused his work on the why. Why do people choose this job in the first place? His answer is that we are predisposed to do it. 
He says frontline journalists have higher levels of a neurotransmitter called dopamine. One frontline journalist he researched tested for higher levels than her twin sister, who's a suburban mom. Feinstein says dopamine leads people to lead more adventurous lifestyles. Now that might take the form of frontline journalism or maybe, you know, high mountain climbing or racing fast cars, etc., etc. And what's interesting is that, and this is what I found, is that many of these individuals report that in a situation like that, they think very clearly. Their thoughts clarify. They can function uh, in a dangerous situation. They do not go to pieces. It's so funny because, I mean, because it, it feeds this narrative that, like, you're a different breed of people. You know what I mean? Like, that you're somehow just not like the rest of us. I mean, how... Is there any sense of how many people have this, these, you know, higher levels of dopamine, you know, I mean, in the real, and just in the world? Everything is going to be distributed along the famous bell curve. Generally, it's about, you know, 10, 15% of the individuals make up the far end of each side of the bell curve. And, of course, not everyone who has that kind of, you know, biological distribution is going to do dangerous stuff. One thing we know, though, is that in most everyone dopamine levels drop over time. And so the kinds of behaviors that you do when you're 20 are very different from the behaviors that you do when you're 40, usually. And so you do see this natural progression with many journalists that they move away from the bang-bang and the very dangerous stuff as they get older. Now that I'm 42 years old, my dopamine is probably in decline. Not to mention that women naturally have lower dopamine levels than men. But still, I kept going toward the story not away from it. At the end of this brief vacation in the U.S., I went right back to work in the Middle East. As the researchers would put it, the dopamine was driving me to do it in the first place, and the adrenaline was keeping me coming back. What? What? It's coming this way? Okay. It's open. We should get in it. Okay, we're back in the house. Okay, now we're hiding. Jesus Christ. Oh my God. They're shooting in the house. I do always say I feel like I was born to do this work. So in some ways, maybe Feinstein is right. But his theory did seem a little too simple, a little too deterministic. So, I mean, we're basically trapped in a kind of safe house right now. They are firing tear gas canisters at very close range. So if it hits a person, it can injure them. And the tear gas is horrible. It's one of those days, you know, where across the Arab world, people are getting tear gassed and beaten. And you, part of you is like feeling what they feel and knowing what they know is really important to be able to tell the story. But is it really worth it? I don't, I don't know. I wasn't always like this. I wasn't some kind of daredevil kid. I was just a normal kid in a small town in the Midwest, going to Catholic school, obsessed with the story of Jesus and how he died on the cross. There was always something about that story, the passion, they call it, how he walked up that hill and was basically tortured to death while everyone watched. And then at the end of this crazy, gruesome scene, the message to us little kids sitting in the pews, he did this for you. He did this to save you. I think that's what did it. That's what made me believe that to do any good in this world, you have to suffer. 
As I got older and went to college, I kind of liked this idea that you had to suffer to create. I remember thinking the 90s were too easy. I moved to Cambodia and started to understand what it felt like to live and work in a place that had known hardship and war. I met a guy named Nathan who seemed to like the do-good, hard, crazy life too. We liked it so much, we got married. I mean, that's something that really brought us together. Like, when in doubt, do the crazy thing you'll remember. You know, burn all bridges, fuck it, whatever. Just do, do when in doubt, do the crazy thing. You know, it was all, at least in my mind, this would all add up to something. Because having done cool shit is a passport to doing more cool shit. Because you have, the, you have the balls to do it. And sometimes cool people want to do cool things with you because you've already done cool things. You know? So if you can say to someone, yeah, oh, so we're going to look for this pirate? No problem. I've been to Alaska. I've lived in Cambodia. Like, so it was all adding up to something. But I think what's happened in the last few years is like, it all added up to something. You've got it now. What he means is it all added up to a job. People actually started paying me to do the cool stuff. Then what? What's it all adding up to now? After Chris and Tim died in Libya, I did keep doing my job, but I was still asking a lot of questions. And while I did stay away from the war in Libya, I couldn't stay away from the Arab uprisings. Listening to Diary of a Bad Year, a war correspondence dilemma from the public radio website, transom.org. More coming up. NPR's Kelly McEvers recently returned from Syria. Kelly is the only American. NPR's Kelly McEvers has that story from Bahrain's capital. Okay, there's police in riot gear. We're all running. Okay. Oh, it's your guess. Oh, my God. 2011 saw me reporting all over the place. Bahrain, Iraq, Yemen, Syria. By the beginning of 2012, I collected my husband and daughter, and we all moved together to Beirut. We got a proper apartment, put my little girl in preschool. Beirut's a great place, most of the time. Trouble is, the uprising in Syria just next door was turning into a civil war. And I was starting to freak out. Testing one, two, three. All right, yeah, so I'm walking down the street with my kid in her stroller. I don't really have time to do this any other way. Um, a couple of days ago, a French journalist was killed, and basically the first journalist to be killed in the Syrian conflict. And then there was a video of what happened that went around the Internet of his... I couldn't watch it. Apparently, it showed the attack, showed people putting his already lifeless body into the back of a taxi, while his wife, who was there, looked on. Um, this is just, it's just, um, it's just the thought, the thought of that, just that you could end up just like some video on YouTube that like some government is going to use as a piece of propaganda is just too deeply disturbing. Um, I cannot get it out of my mind. Yeah, honey, that's an airplane. Um, I cannot get it out of my mind. I'm pretending like I'm talking on the phone right now. 
Um, I just can't stop thinking about it. This is the scariest thing about this whole thing is that I know I'm going to have to go. Not because anyone's going to make me go, but because I'm going to make myself go. Just really started to ask myself, like, what did I do? You know, what did I do? That's right. From the very beginning, Syria was a bad deal for reporters. The government only allowed a few into the country. The rest started sneaking in, running across muddy borders at night, crossing rivers, climbing mountains, anything to get the story. First, the French reporter died. Then the tribe took another major hit. Uh, So we lost another one today, Anthony Shadid correspondent for the New York Times, died in Syria, didn't die in combat, died of an apparent asthma attack. But of course, you can't help but think that had he not been in a going undercover into Syria to cover a war that the government won't let us cover, that he wouldn't have died because he would have been near medical care. Instead, he was out in the middle of nowhere on the frontier with the rebels. He was a great guy. Two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. Lived here in Beirut. Actually convinced me to move to Beirut. It was He was the reason I moved to Beirut. I thought Beirut was a good idea. We sat on panels together. We've been in Iraq together. He's got two children. One's about my daughter's age. The tribe came from all over the world to go to Anthony's funeral. I packed up and went to Yemen and kept working. I tried to convince myself it's what Anthony would have done. Out of the car and into the main field hospital in Change Square, Dr. Tariq Numan treats a man whose leg was destroyed by an explosion during an attack on protesters months back. His bone has been destructed. His joint is already gone. That same week, while I was out reporting and everyone was in Beirut for Anthony's funeral, another member of the tribe was killed. Marie Colvin, a titan of journalism, killed in the Syrian city of Homs, when a government bombardment hit the house where she was staying. She had seen it all. Bosnia, Chechnya, Gaza, Libya. She was our witness to history. She literally dedicated her life to documenting the horrors of war. I didn't know Marie very well, but I knew it was time to make some decisions. I started thinking, maybe I'm not a war reporter. Maybe the counselor, Mark Brain, was right. I did have a choice to make. The real war reporters were the crazy ones, I decided. Crazy like BBC correspondent Paul Wood. He tried to sneak back into the Syrian city of Homs after Marie died there. I found him when he got back. I had to console myself that he was somehow different than me. That there's a breed of person that's built to do this work, and I'm not one of them. Broken glass and everything. I mean, you know, yeah. it really looks like. It might be a bit, I can hear some music and clattering over there. Let's get back through here. Okay. So tell me where we Just describe where we are. <laughs> we're in a curious little corner of Jamezi, which is where I live in Beirut. But we're in a, 
in what looks like a bit of Homs actually, it looks like bombed out buildings. It's in, in the ruin of a very traditional Lebanese house, which I suspect has been let to fall into this state because people want to build a skyscraper here, but for the moment it's a little quiet corner of Jamezi, surrounded by a rather picturesque ruin. I ask Paul what made him go back to Homs. He immediately tells the story about this unforgettable shot his cameraman got the first time they were there. And he filmed them burying people at night because the day was too dangerous and coming under fire while they were burying them and taking this little girl wrapped in a white shroud, carrying her carefully across this graveyard and then having to duck down because of the bullets and then hurriedly throwing some earth over her body and it's too dangerous for the family to be there. So they have this kind of hurried scene at night with no prayers and no family and very, very lonely and slightly desperate. And the following day, a lot of people, including some British members of parliament and people quite close to... um, some British government ministers saying that's the kind of shot which has got everybody talking and which changed the conversation, as they say. Um, um, I think, you know, without too much exaggeration and boasting, they were talking about it all over the world. I knew the story he was talking about, but I couldn't help but wonder, did people really remember that story after that day? Did it really change anything? Paul and Marie had documented the horrors of homes, and yet the world stood by and did nothing. So why does Paul keep doing it? I think there's a thought among people, the the larger press corps, that people like you and Marie, I don't know, that you're somehow different. That you're like a different species of human in some ways because you're continually willing to do that. I mean, you're past the testosterone phase, right? And and you did make sensible choices and, and stuff, but you still are doing this, you know? And you say you kind of want to get out of it, but you're still doing it. I mean... Um. It's gotten old for me, I must say, but I see young reporters who are just, you know, the, the thrill of it and the excitement, and it's crazy. It's kind of like you're in, you know, a Hollywood movie or Mad Max or something. We've all got egos, and you've got this amazing backdrop to your stuff, and it all seems very dramatic, and it dramatises your role in it. You know, these are all very shallow reasons for wanting to do it. Right, and that's not you now. Honestly, can say I don't get the thrill anymore. I realised pretty quickly that Paul uses the same logic I do. I'm not the real bang-bang journalist. Those other guys, the photographers, the frontline aid workers, they're the crazy ones. Paul says he's even thinking about moving to a safer place, like Brazil. He has five kids of his own. He does say it would be hard to leave the Middle East at the height of such a big story. He says if he really thought about it, he wouldn't do this work at all. So he doesn't think about it. There's no way I could justify being killed in this way to the kids it was really is a very stupid thing to do and the only way that we carry on doing it is by thinking well you know we're going to be cautious when we get there and we are not going to end up getting killed somebody a a friend of mine is a former journalist member of parliament and also a former soldier with an elite unit said you've got to sit down and write letters to all your kids in case something bad happens and I really don't want to do that because actually sitting down to write those letters would mean it would be impossible to justify what we do. So you won't do it? I ought to, but I do think I'm not, I think I'm not going to. Have you really made your letter to write, eh? The act of actually doing it is like some sort of admission, right? I mean, there was a very good journalist called David Blundy who was shot through the neck by a sniper in El Salvador, and his daughter Anna Blundy was in her first year at Oxford then and has written about it movingly but pretty consistently over the next 20 years, and I think she's never recovered from that. Certainly you get the impression that in her writing it was something that has left a scar which will never heal. I knew I had to talk to this woman. But first I started planning my own trip to Syria. 
Talking to Paul made me realize I wanted to go too. I started arranging a trip with smugglers who could get me across the border and activists who could disguise me and get me through government checkpoints. I was pretty shaky about it. I couldn't sleep at night thinking about Anthony and Marie and how they died. I knew it was probably the wrong time to talk to Anna Blundy, but I did it anyway. I asked her to go to a studio in London while I talked to her on the phone. Are we ready to go? Yep, I am. Turns out she had just been at Marie's funeral the day before. It was an interesting event, the memorial service, the other day, because just all the world's war correspondents were there, of a certain generation, obviously. And listening to them talk at the party afterwards, just kind of imagining my dad being with them, because they were all friends of his and all came up and said hi, and they remembered that, in fact... A lot of them had last seen me at my dad's memorial service in the same church in St. Martin in the Fields in London 20 years previously. Wow. I guess I just could, we start, you could tell me a little bit about your father? Yeah, my my father um, was a very old generation war correspondent. He would now have been 66. And when he was covering wars, it was, uh, I think one can't, One can't shy away from the fact that people do that job for fun. It's enormous fun. And he absolutely loved it. And it was all about the women and the getting drunk in the bars at night and the incredible excitement of being at the very, very edge of life between life and death, both yourself and observing other people in these incredibly extreme situations. And he loved it. And I think that that is part of the pain for the child left behind. It's not an altruistic crusade for truth and beauty. And anyone who pretends it is, uh, is either lying or probably isn't a very good journalist. Uh, People do it because it's fun. And the idea that somebody is choosing not to be with you because it's more fun to be elsewhere uh, remains with me. I'm 42. Um, and I think that the fact that the main man in my life chose something above me will always be difficult. Uh, I grew up with this amazingly glamorous, wonderful, fascinating, funny and handsome figure who prioritized against me. Yeah. And it wasn't much comfort to to you to hear this, you know, the phrase everyone always, he died doing what he loved. He died doing what he was meant to do. I mean, well, I think to, 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 to feel that one is meant to do something, you have to believe in God or fate or something spiritual that neither I nor my father believed in. Um, I think that the fact that he died doing what he loved made it all the more painful. Do you wish that he had left you something, um, a letter, uh, something sort of an in case something happens to you. Oh, I've, I do, I do wish he'd done that. But more than that, I suppose, I wish that he'd been around more. I wish that he was here getting to know my kids. They would have loved him. What should I write to my child? You shouldn't. You're going to stop. You're going to, you're going to stay at home and look after her. You won't need to. At that point, I knew I needed to argue with Anna, but I simply did not have the strength. Still, I wanted to know what message she thought her father should have left behind. Well, I mean, I think that what I would have wanted to know 
what I, but it wasn't true, unfortunately, but I think that what I would have wanted to know was that I was much more important to him than his job. But in the end, the way you prove that <laughs> is to be with the child and not at work. I mean, I think risking your life is never good for your kids. And I'm sure that the children of soldiers um, have a, an equally difficult time, except that somehow they are probably made to feel that the parent's job is is absolutely necessary. Whereas with war correspondence, there's no real need to go. This is really a choice. By now, I'm in pieces. She really has hit me where it hurts. Every minute I have ever spent away from my kid, every time we've Skyped and my little girl has looked behind the laptop searching for the rest of my body, comes to haunt me. There she was, the adult version of my own daughter, furious at me for dying for some story. It's only now that I realize a lot of what Anna had to say was about Anna, not about me. I simply did not have the wherewithal at the time to say what I would say to her now. I'm not your father. I'm home a lot. I don't drink very much. I cook my kid dinner. I read her stories. I never make promises I can't keep. Of course, Anna did have a point. We aren't soldiers who take these risks to serve our country. While we might feel like we have a mission, we also do this because it's fun. We do it because we want to have the best story at the dinner party. We do it because we think we're somehow different than ordinary people. Either way, I canceled that trip to Syria. Instead, I stayed at home, sat in my office in Beirut, and tried to cover Syria by remote control. Every day we watched videos that Syrians had uploaded to YouTube and tried to make sense of what was happening. This macabre video it's difficult to verify the details. He was later filmed on a dark stairwell. This report on a pro-government TV channel, the Facebook page, calls their work Then, like so many of these videos that we get out of Syria, the footage of Noor's funeral just stops. By the summer of 2012, it started getting easier for reporters to get into Syria. I was tired of long-distance reporting. I knew the best way to tell the story was to get up close, to be there in person. But first, I decided to talk to one of my heroes, who's also become one of my friends, John Lee Anderson. He's a longtime writer for The New Yorker, who always seems to be going into conflicts and failed states and disaster zones. I wanted someone to tell me that the work we do is not just for fun, like Anna Blundy said, that there is a purpose. Sure, Marie Colvin didn't stop the killing in Syria, but telling these stories must be good for something. I met John Lee at a hotel here in Beirut. I asked him to start at the beginning, to tell me where his impulse to cover war came from. I grew up on stories of explorers and great men of history, and my mother was a writer, and she gave me biographies when I was very young. And so a lot of my, I think, my early role models are, are heroes. The ones I gravitated towards were the men of action and the men of history, including, you know, not such nice figures. By the time I was a teenager, I think my notion of what I, I wanted to be by the time I reached manhood involved, you know, a certain number of ritual experiences. So he started going on these crazy adventures. 
from the age of about 10, I was allowed to go away for the first time on my own to a rural part of Taiwan, hiking and doing things. Because I had planned trips to Iri and Jai and Borneo and all these things. So, you know, I learned how to ride barebacks. I began running away, hunting for snakes and kangaroos. And each time I got caught and returned, I went elephant hunting in Uganda and met the hyena man at a time when nobody was going there. I did try to cross the Atlantic and to sail away. I climbed volcanoes. I learned how to be a pickpocket. I lived on the street in the port on fishermen's nets for five years. I learned how to climb coconut trees. I had climbed Kilimanjaro when I was very young. So by the age of 18, I felt pretty proud of the things I was getting done, but I still hadn't done certain things. And um, war was one of them. So John Lee and his brother wrote a book about war. Then he wrote one about guerrilla fighters. He spent time in Latin America, Afghanistan, Kosovo. Then came 9-11. John Lee says he volunteered immediately. When I saw the second plane hit, I was in Spain. Within 10 minutes of that, I said, this is, this is the Pearl Harbor of my time. And I knew America was going to go to war. I said, and it's Afghanistan, they're going to go to war in Afghanistan. And I had been there and I thought, okay, and I have to go because it's my country. They don't know this country. I've been there. I had this sense that I didn't want my countrymen to objectify huge swatches of other humanity like they did in Vietnam where Vietnamese became gooks and we killed over two million of them. I felt like I felt I had to go. It sounds like duty. It was a kind of weird sense of duty, yeah. And then I felt I obliged to go to Iraq as well. And then sometime in 2005, I, I realized the whole experience was becoming dark. My world had become a world exclusively of war. And I felt dark inside. I, I felt like I can't let it go. I remember it was a mental process to tear myself away. As strange as that sounds, it was definitely a tearing away. It took me maybe six months. But of course, he didn't stop. He went back to Afghanistan, he covered Israel's war in Lebanon, and he went back to Iraq again. He covered the Libyan war to topple Gaddafi in 2011. And now he's doing Syria. Even though that's where Marie and Anthony and others died. And even though Chris and Tim died before that. It's been a really bad year. It's been a tough toll on a small tribe of friends and colleagues who have never numbered that many. You know that in all my life, in all these 30-odd years or whatever it is that I've been doing this, it's never been more than about 30 or 40 people, maybe 50. So to lose, you know, six people in a year, it's tough. But, you know, there is something, I suppose, of, um, I don't know, maybe maybe it gets your back up. Maybe it makes you more determined in a weird way. I don't know. You said that you managed to make it through all this without any glaring pathologies. Um, How do you feel like you've managed to do it? Having a family. I think having a family has been key. You know? Having a family is is the absolute, you know, foundation stone. It's the anchor. Uh, without them, it would have been very hard, I think. As paradoxical as it sounds, you know, that one would leave them in order to keep doing this thing, I think at the same time, if I had to go back to a kind of my own, you know, a kind of 
solitary existence, um, you know, a, a rented room somewhere, it would have been pretty hollow. John Lee doesn't talk much about his family. I think part of it is that to reveal too much about your personal life is to give too much information to the bad guys. Guys who might research you on the internet, detain you, interrogate you, kidnap you. His advice to me was simple. If you start to get a bad feeling about things, take a break. That's what he does. You know, I think if, if, at the point it went, it, when it begins to feel um, upsetting to be doing what you're doing, then that is the point at which you need to really take stock and maybe alter course. And it's like, that was part of life. This is, this is now this part of life. You know, if you can transpose what you're doing and do it somewhere else and you're equally as interested, then uh, it can be a good thing. We cry a little, we hug, and then I leave John Lee and walk out into hot and steamy Beirut. I try really hard not to turn around and wave at him. I can't help but think, oh God, please do not let this be the last time I see him. I don't think I could take it if we lost John Lee. Turns out I did see John Lee again just a few weeks later. It was at the Syrian border. I was coming out of Syria. He was going in. We drank wine and gave each other knowing looks. I guess neither one of us thought we needed a break. I had just spent a week basically embedded with rebel fighters in Syria, seeing where they trained and fought and killed. I knew I had crossed some line. I felt like I'd done something wrong, but I did it anyway. It was like having a bad boyfriend. It only got worse from there. This is Diary of a Bad Year, a war correspondence dilemma from the public radio website transom.org. We'll continue in a moment. We're just about to cross the border. There's a guy holding up a piece of barbed wire fence. Thank you very much. Welcome to Syria. <laughs> ready to go? We come up on a bombed-out apartment building that shelters the rebel unit stationed here. This is the front line. So where are the regime's troops and where are the rebels? The regime's forces are only 50 feet away. We have to hurry out of town before we know the end of the story. Kelly McEvers, NPR News. By the end of 2012, I was going into Syria a lot. And I was getting really strung out. I started waking up in hotel rooms with no idea where I was. I pretty much forgot how to sleep. I stopped unpacking my backpack when I got home. Flak jacket, helmet, power bars, headlamp. I started to like the way that smelly pile of stuff looked in the corner of my office. Still, I knew this life was not sustainable. I had to figure out a way to quit. But how? And why? All of a sudden, I started getting awards. I even got a raise. People started saying really nice things to me about the work I was doing. When I would go home to visit the U.S., I'd tell my friends, oh yeah, I'm, I'm looking for a way out. But as soon as I would get back here to the Middle East, I would feel that pull again. I remember hearing longtime war correspondent Sebastian Younger talking about how war changes you, how seeing a dead girl in Bosnia changed him forever. 
I had this sense I still needed to go through that to somehow know what it's like. I also knew that Sebastian had decided to quit the war reporting business after his dear friend and collaborator Tim Hetherington died in that battle in Misrata, Libya, the one that also killed Chris Hondros. I asked Sebastian to go to a studio in New York, and I gave him a call. I mean, was it a moment? Like, was there just a day when you woke up one morning and you were just like, that's it, I'm done? Or did it kind of evolve? You know, it didn't even take very long. I, I um, my, my wife and I got back to the apartment, and the phone rang almost immediately, and it was a friend of mine who knew Tim, and she said, you know, there's something wrong. You know, Tim's been hurt in Misrata. And so we immediately sort of got online and started making calls, and within a few minutes we'd confirmed that he was dead. And um, uh, I told my wife, and I, you know, I was sort of fine at first. I mean, I, I, basically I was in shock. I wasn't having much re- reaction at all. She was, and she yeah. immediately sort of broke down. And um, I think within all probably 10 minutes, uh, I had decided, we had mutually decided that that was it for war reporting. I mean, it really was a, pretty much an instantaneous thing. I mean, maybe it was the first hour, but it was like that kind of time frame. You guys just looked each other in the face and it was like, this is it. Yeah. Not happening again. You know, it was, a, it was a gut decision at first made, you know, sort of in conjunction with my wife. But but in the days and hours and days that followed, I, I understood, like, how how essential that was. And, and I really kind of got it. Like, this is what this is what happens when people gamble with their own lives. Like, this is the consequence of it. They're they've crossed the finish line. Like, they don't have to deal with it. You're 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 gambling with other people's sorrow. Yeah. You know, you get killed, you're dead, your problem's over with. But what you leave behind are dozens of people who are um, just shattered with grief and will never entirely recover from it. Sebastian says he was able to come to this realization because he was almost 50. If he had been younger, he says he might not have thought about it. It all jibes with what the researcher, Dr. Feinstein, told me. As we get older, our dopamine levels drop and we take fewer risks. Sebastian is the first to admit that when he was young, he was really into war. No, that's right. But you're finding out the sort of essential truths of life and death. And and those are things that humans lived, you know, side by side with for most of our evolutionary past. And very rarely do you think the decisions I make today are either going to kill me or they're not going to kill me. Well, humans lived in that kind of situation for tens of thousands of years, and suddenly we're not. And I think there is a, a kind of genetic regret that life is no longer sort of on that kind of edge. And so people do extreme sports. They surf 100-foot waves. They go to war zones. I feel like it's a very, in some ways, it's a very natural and kind of psychologically healthy impulse to test yourself. But you then have to right. know when you've passed the test you don't have to keep doing it. You you need to know when it's becoming compulsive behavior. And how do you do that? Uh, I, you know, I, I I think you have to just be self-aware. You have to keep questioning yourself. Why am I, what am I getting out of this? I'm about to, you know, I'm about to go to Syria. What is it exactly I'm hoping to get out of this? I, it, and if you tell yourself, well, the Syrian people need this, like, that's true, but it's also really not why you're going. Sorry. Like, no. And, and um, there's no shame in that. I mean, just be honest about it. Like, I'm going for myself, you know, partly yeah. for myself. Like, start by saying that. 
Okay, I have one last question. I mean, yeah. I guess I have to ask, like, do you think I should quit? What would you tell me? Well, I, you know, I don't know, um, I don't know what kind of decisions you make. You know, I mean, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, are you a daredevil? Are you, like, cautious? Like, no. I, I think it depends how you, I mean, it's, it's like, should I, should I believe in God or something? I don't know. Like, that's, it, it, it's, it's personal. It's, it's personal. It, it's like, if you're feeling the calling, like, that's a real thing. And, but you have to, I mean, the main thing is like making sure you understand the difference between a calling and a compulsion. Mm-hmm. You cover yeah. wars, you, you know, like when it becomes your entire identity and you don't know how you're going to unhook from it, like, then you got to think about why you're doing it. You know, there's also things that are more challenging and more interesting than war. <laughs> I just didn't know what they were until I was in my late 40s. <laughs> well, I'm 42, so I got, I'm close. Like, I'm really close. I got, like, two more years. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Yeah, my pleasure. Now I just had to find out what could be more interesting than going into Syria. So here we are, it's sunset in the village of Asma. It's the first time a rebel from here has died in a firefight. After sundown, we walk to the rebel base to see if we can hear more news about the battle. We won't forget this, the sister of the dead man says finally. When we control Syria, we won't forget that you forgot about us. I was really grateful to talk to guys like Sebastian and John Lee, but they are guys. These days, most of the foreign correspondents I know are women. Whenever I tell people I'm a foreign correspondent, they say, oh, you mean like Christiane Amanpour from CNN? No surprise who I talk to next. Kelly? Yes, hi. Hi, Hi, how are you? Great. Back in the 90s, when Christiane covered the war in Bosnia, she didn't have a family. She used to say if she did have a baby, she'd bring the child with her into the field. She'd just get bulletproof diapers. Then she actually had a child. That, that brought with it a whole new layer of fear, a different kind of fear, and that was the fear of wanting to stay alive and caring about staying alive for my son, knowing that I needed to be there for him. So Christiane stopped going into conflict zones. She says she doesn't think that's what every female foreign correspondent should do. That's just what she had to do. But, you know, we've also chosen this mission. It's not just a day job. We're not just punching a clock. I certainly believe in the transformative power of in-the-field reporting and great journalism. I believe that you cannot do it unless you're there. And I believe that it's our mission and our responsibility to be the eyes and ears of our viewers, readers, listeners, online clickers, because no matter how much information there is around the world today and no matter how warp speed it's being transmitted around the world on so many different platforms, you know, so much of it is commentary and very little of it is eyewitness. And that's our job and that's our duty and that's what makes this profession as strong as it is and as it should be. It's something I'm I'm so torn about because I cover Syria and we absolutely have to be there. We have to witness what's happening. We have to put this down on the record. Our policymakers have to know what's going on in Syria. But yet I'm I'm worrying about my own personal safety now. I do have a child and 
And I find myself saying, you know, I think we have to do this work in shifts. You know, I think maybe you have to recognize when your turn is up and that somebody else will take a turn. I mean, what do you think about that? What advice do you give people who are, should I quit? (laughs) No, don't quit. Well, here's what I think. I think the minute you have a doubt, you have to step back and you need to think about it. You have to listen to yourself. You have to know when to when to push ahead and know when to withdraw. You have to know when to, you know, rush towards, but also when to step back. These days I've been doing a lot of that kind of thinking, and I do think I'm getting close to quitting. I actually have started to think maybe my turn is up. Maybe it's time to let someone else have a go. For the first time, I'm able to visualize what life would be like back in the normal world. Being an American reporter, covering something like crime or guns. That's what the psychiatrists and John Lee and Sebastian told me. You have to envision what kind of life you would lead without war. I am still going into Syria. I can't bring myself to totally abandon the people I've come to know over the past two years. Some part of me still needs to find out how will their stories end? What will happen to the people who fought and screamed and died to bring down their government? Will they win? Then again, it does seem like the whole thing will end in war and destruction. Every day I ask myself, do I really want to see that happen? Here, now, as I go through each day with my family in Beirut, I feel like the best thing I can do is to be honest about my job, to name the reality of the situation. That's what my man Nathan has done. He says the fact that we've lived through so many deaths and funerals has actually made it easier to imagine. Yeah, I mean, do you, do you want to know this? I mean, yeah, like, I, before I would, I would, I would, I would, picturing your death was like, it I could, I, there, there was no, there was no pattern for it, no blueprint for it. Even though I could potentially have researched it and figured out like what it would feel like in five different ways. Like I know what it was. I remember, I'll never forget the morning I found out how Anthony, that Anthony had died. I'll never forget how it reverberated in our community. I'll never forget how it hit the news. I'll never forget how I found out the, when the funeral was going to be and who was there and, and a month later, what his wife is going through. And, you know, I mean, all these things are very vivid for me now. And so I can see it. And I, I, don't, I don't like imagining it. But, you know, we're human beings. We, we fill in the story. So, yeah. What, that's comforting? Comforting is not, probably not the right word because it's not, there's nothing comfortable about any of this. It's more just like, um, I don't know, realistic about it. So this is what it is. We've taken it out of the worry place in our brains and we've put it on the table. Here's what it sounds like. My job is very dangerous. No matter how cool or how important I might think it is, I could die doing this job. Once we started saying that and examining it, once we started really coming to terms with it, I realized there was only one more thing I had to do. I had to sit down and write that letter. The letter I'd leave behind in case I die. The letter Paul Wood can't write. The letter Anna Blundy wishes her father had written. 
It wasn't easy to write. It was even harder to record. Nathan hasn't read it or heard it yet, but he's okay with it being out there. I'm going to read this letter. Um, Dearest Nathan and Loretta. Oh, boy. If you are reading this, it means something terrible has happened. I write this with the full belief that I will be taking all the right precautions, but you never know. However deep your pain is, please understand that I was not cavalier and that I loved you both as truly and thoughtfully as I could. All the way until the end and beyond. If I can leave you with anything, let it be a little advice. While it might not give you comfort now, let it someday inspire. All of us must meet our end someday. Don't let knowledge of that inevitable death bring you fear. Rather, look it in the face. Walk toward it at times if you have to. Because to live without fear is the only way to truly live. If my life means anything to you, let it be that. As the years go on, read this book and know that my love is an ongoing postscript to my life, that it endures. Know, Nathan, that you taught me as no one before what love truly is. And know, Loretta, that the day you came into the world was the happiest day of my life. Live on with the knowledge that you were loved and that you will be loved again and again by this wide and wonderful world. Yours. Kelly slash mom. I am still alive. I haven't had to use this letter. Right now it's tucked in a book sitting on a shelf in my office. There was something about writing it, something about actually imagining how my family would have to cope with such an awful situation that's made me feel not better, but maybe a little less irresponsible. Since then, I have been getting flashes of what it might be like for Nathan to have to explain to our four-year-old that I'm never coming home again. And then I get flashes of what our totally normal suburban life might be like waiting in line at the post office, going to a parent-teacher conference. For now, until I really decide to leave this work, those images are what keep me going.